Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful morning and just the, just the sweet spirit that's in the air and the great uh, crowd we have here this morning as we gather together to study your word. I just pray that you would uh, calm our hearts and uh, calm our fears and anxieties and just help us really to, to feed on your goodness and faithfulness and to feed on the truth of your word and allow it to really nourish our souls. And uh, Lord, as always, we pray if there's one listening today, either online or here in the building that doesn't know you, we pray that the gospel would do what it's supposed to do, and that is convict uh, the world in great power of the need for a Savior. And I pray that if there's someone that doesn't know you today, they would come to know you, and today would be the day of salvation. And so, Lord, we give you this time now. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we have lots to... Uh, to talk about in terms of announcements, uh, but I do want to get and spend some good time in our uh, study of eternal rewards, picking up where we left off last time. Uh, but first, some announcements. So uh, for those watching online, the book goes on sale tonight at midnight, and you can order it you know, tomorrow or tonight after midnight. For those of you here, good news, we've got a supply of them out on the resource table, and we're Not By Works is uh, giving 50 of those away to the Plum Creek Chapel family. Uh, so we are asking one per family just so that they'll go further. Uh, there's plenty out there. If you want more than one, uh, the church has purchased additional copies, and you can just put a check or money in that little box. All that money goes to Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, but anyway, we'd like to offer one per family if you're here today and hope you uh, enjoy. And something I've really been looking forward to and really excited about and already um, getting some, some feedback, and we've lined up a bunch of uh, interviews and TV things, and so pray that the Lord uses it, uh, both volumes together, tell a, a powerful story about the cosmic battle between God and Satan that is kicking into high gear as we get closer and closer to the end time. So uh, if you're watching online, you can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org and get a sneak peek of, at it, but again, uh, tomorrow you'll be able to go online and order that at notbyworks.org. Uh, volume 1 is also, of course, still available. We have some of those out there as well if you don't already have that. And now, it's been two weeks since I was here, so let me mention several free resources that are out there that you may be interested in, starting with the most recent, and that was on uh, Friday, the 21st, I was on a new podcast called What's the Deal with Don Deal, and uh, never had been with him before, but he's from Oklahoma, sweet uh, uh, guy, great guy, uh, and he asked me to come on his podcast, and I did. We had a great discussion about deception, conspiracies, and the church. So you can listen to that on our podcast channel, uh, or you can go st straight to notbyworks.org and listen to it on the podcast page there. That was from Friday. Then earlier in the week, on a Tuesday, no, yeah, I think it was Tuesday, I did a, a standalone podcast uh, with uh, one of our own Plum Creek Chapel folks, Randy, uh, and uh, that turned out to be a fantastic discussion. Randy is a super smart guy, knows a lot about geopolitical events, and I thought, I'm just going to have him come on and talk about Russia and Ukraine and a lot of the, the things that are happening uh, around the world. And so we talked for about an hour, fantastic interview. I encourage you to check that podcast out as well. Enough is enough, Satan's Day uh, of Reckoning. And then uh, on my trip, I spoke twice at a college. I spoke to a a uh, group of young people in chapel on framing your worldview from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That's a video. You can watch that at notbyworks.org. That night I spoke at Beaumont Bible Church on the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And that too is a video 
Of course, all of our videos are also podcasts, so if you prefer the audio, you can find these messages on the podcast channel as well. But these actually have video with them, so I encourage you to check that out. And then I, I forgot to put one in here, and that is my article from this week. If you get uh, the Plum Creek Chapel newsletter, you saw my article, uh, 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 devotional this week, Satan is a Loser. So if you agree with that, you should read the article. If you don't agree with that, you can leave. So, uh, but Satan is a loser. He's lost the battle. Yes, Mike? I thought uh, pastors only worked on Sunday. Yeah, uh-huh, we do. We do. The rest is all overtime. The rest is time and a half, six days a week. So, yeah, and then one final announcement. Thanks for bearing with me with all just letting you know about these resources. This next one is an upcoming event. Next Sunday, right here in this room, Plum Creek Chapel is hosting a Elbert County Stands Up event. Uh, so there'll be quite a few people from different uh, freedom groups and stand-up uh, groups. Uh, and they've asked me to speak on central bank digital currencies and the coming one world system. So I have a whole section of that in the new book. Uh, you can check that out, but I'm going to kind of distill that down to about a 30-minute message for that conference. And that's free right here. It'll be at 2 o'clock next Sunday. I encourage you to come back out for that, meet some new people. There'll be uh, at least two other speakers all talking about kind of where we're headed in this uh, rapid descent into a one-world system uh, with the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and all of, the, all of the things that I talk about in the book. All right, well, with that, uh, let's uh, continue our look at what lies ahead. And we are in the middle of a section where we're taking a look at a very important doctrine on the judgment seat of Christ and the doctrine of eternal rewards. I have the last two times I've handed out a handout. I didn't bring any additional ones today. I think by now everybody has that. Uh, if this is your first time or if you're watching online and you don't have it, you can email me and I'll send you a PDF copy of it. Uh, but we won't take the time to establish the, uh, the premise. But the point uh, is there's a doctrine in Scripture that is clearly taught. Every writer in the New Testament addresses it, and that is the doctrine of rewards. You don't hear much about it, but it's a key doctrine because it answers that natural desire within all of us to earn things. And as we've talked about, the one thing that we all need most, we cannot earn, and that is eternal life. Eternal life is a free gift paid for solely by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and He offers that freely to anyone who will come. Whosoever will, let him drink of the water of life freely. Uh, now, how do you receive that? Well, if you've been here very long, you've heard me say it a thousand times, you receive it by faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. Faith is the mechanism of receiving the gift. You can't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't give anything for it. You don't give something to the Lord uh, for it. In fact, in uh, the message that I gave uh, last week in Beaumont, the one on uh, the rich young ruler, if you watch that, you'll see I actually show a, a tweet that someone sent out of a major uh, Baptist church in which they were talking about how salvation is a pledge. Uh, this is one of the largest Southern Baptist churches in the country. And they said, here's how you get saved. You have to make a pledge to Jesus. Well, the Bible never says that. And uh, frankly, if, if that's how you got eternal life, then Jesus didn't have to suffer and die on the cross for our sins if it's all about just us pledging something to the Lord. Uh, so eternal life is a free gift. And that's what makes it so difficult uh, for some people to receive it because it's hard for us in our human minds to think we can get something as valuable as eternal life for nothing. But it is absolutely free. Uh, Romans 3.24 says for, uh, we are justified freely by His grace. Titus 3.5, the theme verse for not by works ministry, says uh, uh, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you save through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But nevertheless, we have an innate desire and we are wired in our humanness to work and to earn. Um, uh, as I've mentioned, Adam and Eve before the fall were working in the garden. They were tending the garden. They were naming the animals, those types of things. So eternal rewards answers that natural inclination, and it's a doctrine that's taught in the New Testament relative to the church. We don't see any Old Testament teaching about rewards for Old Testament saints or tribulation saints or millennial saints. doesn't mean they won't have their reward of some kind. I think, In fact, I think you can theologically extrapolate that God is in the rewarding business and that all believers of all ages will probably have some type of rewards. But the New Testament explicitly describes a... A bema judgment, that's what the judgment seat of Christ means. The Greek word is actually bema, and it, it means judgment seat. And uh, it's a time when Jesus Christ will sit on the throne and reward all believers who have been raptured and stand before that throne uh, according to their faithfulness on earth. So uh, while this subject is A, neglected, and B, even when it's taught, people kind of keep it at arm's length, and it just doesn't sound right. You know, they, they've been they bought into the the Hollywood notion of heaven, that heaven is just some ethereal place where we're all floating around in the clouds, you know, singing kumbaya, and we're all turned into angels, or we get our wings, or those kinds of things. The Bible tells a completely different story of the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed. The eternal dwelling place of the redeemed is the new heavens and the new earth, and we're going to be functioning on earth the way God intended us to function before the fall, in a sinless, recreated new heavens and new earth. And so... Um, Part of that involves uh, rewards, and while uh, eternity for all believers will be a positive experience, a blissful experience, it will be more so for some than others based on how faithful we are here and now. And that is, uh, as we're going to find out as we continue to look at some scriptures, uh, unquestionable in scripture. Uh, rewards are earned, and we looked at several passages kind of, you know, detailing uh, the doctrine of eternal rewards. But as I said, it's taught in just about you know every New Testament book, just about every New Testament writer addresses it. And uh, you know you see several passages. If we go back here, the one of the one of my favorites is the one in Colossians three. In Colossians three, Paul says, uh, whatever you do, Verse 23, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So any time in Scripture when you see a passage that seems to connect our receiving something to our conduct or our behavior, our performance, that has to be talking about rewards because Scripture cannot contradict itself and Scripture plainly teaches that our eternal destiny, heaven itself, as we like to say, is not something we earn. It's not a reward. It's a free gift. It's the free gift. So, as I talked about, I think, a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> or a couple of sessions ago, you, know, you have to think in terms of two buckets. There's the eternal salvation bucket, and then there's the eternal reward bucket. Eternal salvation bucket is free, simply received by faith. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. But then there's this other bucket. And you see a lot of passages that talk about an inheritance, 
By the way, inheritance in the New Testament is not a technical term that refers to rewards. Sometimes in the context, it can refer to eternal life. And in those contexts, it's something you get free. But if it's tying your inheritance to something you have to earn, that's talking about a reward. So uh, you need to think in terms of those two buckets, and that will help solve a lot of uh, biblical conundrums. You know, we come across these passages and especially those who believe in a works-based salvation, they like to point to certain passages and say, see here, see what it says? And usually there's a logical explanation that is consistent with you know, the free grace theology that salvation is free, rewards are earned. And so you know, when you come across a passage that at first pass seems to be saying, hmm, you have to earn your salvation, step back and ask yourself, could this be talking about rewards? And that is, is usually the way you resolve those passages. There are other passages that are tough texts that, uh, you know, th that talk about uh, behavior in the context of salvation, and, and not all of them are talking about rewards, but there's an explanation for it, and, you know, sometime we can go through some of those. We have, as they've come up over the last couple of years, but like 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, Galatians 5, passages like that. So we've looked at several uh, behaviors that can be rewarded, and uh, I think, you know, we got into a pretty good discussion about the notion of, uh, you know, uh, certain positions of authority. I'm trying to find here positions of leadership in uh, the kingdom. Maybe we passed it already. Uh, oh, this is, re this is rewardable behavior. So I just want to do a couple more. Then I want to get into the types of rewards, because just as there are quite a few behaviors that are said to be rewardable at the Bema, there are also various types of rewards. What we're most uh, familiar with are crowns. How many of you have heard of crowns as being a reward, right? Uh, absolutely, but that's not the only reward. Uh, there are other rewards. So let's see, let's, uh, we talked about hospitality last time, the prophet's reward. Um, just general diligence in your Christian walk. Uh, look at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews has a lot to say about rewards and especially co-reigning with Christ. But here we see uh, in Hebrews 6, uh, this is one of the famous warning passages in Hebrews, and he says, um, starting out in verse 10, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. By the way, for those of you that were with us during our How to Read and Understand the Bible series, what kind of figure of speech is this in verse 10 here? For God is not unjust. I'll give you $1,000 if you remember not really. I better tell you before someone remembers. Um, so it is uh, a litotes. It's when you emphasize a positive by negating the negative. So God is not unjust is just another way of saying God is particularly just. God can never be unjust. So it's not like sometimes he is, sometimes he isn't. This is just a way of saying God is very, very fair. And he will not forget your labor of love. Now look at verse 11. We desire that each one of you so that show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, again, if you don't understand grace and you don't understand, you know, the fact that salvation is free, you could pull that verse out of context <clears throat> and, and say, wow, you got to be diligent until the end or you're going to hell. <laughs> if you deviate, if you fall away, if you turn your back on the Lord, boy, he's going to send you to hell. But that's not what the scripture says. See, our eternal life is something we get the moment we believe. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel. 
And if it's eternal, if that's what you possess at that moment, when faith meets the gospel, then by definition it can never be lost. So the very notion of losing your salvation is a contradiction in terms. That's why most often you'll hear me talk about eternal salvation. That's the phrase I prefer to use. For one thing, the term salvation in Scripture is used more than half the time to refer not to eternity but to physical salvation from sickness, harm, disease, danger. Uh, so it's, it's natural to qualify when you say salvation that you're talking about eternal salvation. But I also like to say it that way because it just reminds people that indeed it's eternal. So if you insert the word eternal and someone says, I believe you can lose your eternal salvation, it makes them out to be silly because if it's eternal, it can't be lost. That's what makes it eternal, right? So you get eternal life when you believe, not when you die. And so when he's saying here, you know, we want you to show, the, show diligence until the end. Don't become sluggish, verse 12, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what are the promises here? Eternal life or rewards? Rewards, rewards that's right. In fact, a, a key analogy that the writer of Hebrews uses throughout is, especially in chapter 4 with the concept of, of rest, is the entering into the promised land. Now, uh, unfortunately... We have a lot of uh, songs and hymns and a lot of writing and stuff that sort of equates the promised land for Israel with heaven. But let's think about that. So what do we know about the historical account of the Israelites as they left Egypt and came to the Jordan 40 years later and then that generation that believed got to cross over into the promised land? Are we to assume that all of the Jews that did not get to cross over into the promised land are in hell today? Which would include, by the way, Moses? <laughs> no, of course not. That, that was a reward. And the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that because of their unbelief, their lack of faith, some of them didn't get to get into the promised land. It doesn't have anything to do with their eternal destiny. Uh, and by the way, not all Israelites were saved. They, like every human being since Adam, have to be saved the same way by personal individual faith. So you're not automatically a child of God just because you're born a Jew. You need to believe. That's, that's what Paul says in Romans uh, 10, uh, when he, or at the end of chapter 9 going into chapter 10, when he explains you know, why the nation of Israel didn't receive the kingdom at Christ's first advent. It's because they didn't have individual faith righteousness. They were bound up in the law. They were seeking the righteousness that the kingdom demands uh, by their behavior. And he says they didn't seek it by faith. They sought it through the law. And that's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. This, I talk about this uh, in my message on the rich young ruler. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom. Uh, because in fact, and then he goes on to say, in fact, if you really want to get into the kingdom, you have to be perfect, just as our Heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. So he wasn't saying that entrance into the kingdom is based on some graded level of, you know, like grading on a curve or being in the 99th percentile. He's saying you have to, be, you have, to have faith righteousness, the kind of righteousness that is imputed to you, given to you as a free gift when you believe in Jesus. And so... And as you've probably heard me say before, and as I mentioned at that message last week in Beaumont, right after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 8, remember the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapters 5 through 7, 
And then you get to chapter 8. The very first thing that Matthew records is Jesus' encounter with a Gentile, a centurion, and he commends the faith of that centurion. And he says, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And he's indicting the lack of faith on the part of the Jews who had come to think that entrance into the heaven kingdom was about dotting your I's and crossing your, your, your T's. And, you know, ha, you know, praying long prayers, wearing the right clothing, having large phylacteries, and just, you know, making, walking the walk, you know, playing the part. So he says, I tell you, indeed, people will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, talking about the Gentiles. So it's all about faith. And so the writer of Hebrews, going back to Hebrews 6, is saying, <clears throat> hang on to the faith. In chapter 10, he says, don't cast away your faith. Hang on to it. Good times and bad times. Keep trusting God. Why? Because that will be rewarded. And like the Israelites who had faith, steadfast, you'll, you'll have your own reward in, in the form of a promised land. Yeah? So... The Israelites come up to the promised land. So what was the what was the belief they had yeah. to get in or not get in? It was just trust. The question is, what was the belief or lack of belief that determined whether they got in the promised land? It was a general trust in God. It was the old hymn, Trust and Obey. They just didn't trust God. They were whining, complaining. They didn't believe He would provide food for them. No sooner than He provided food, they started whining again. Um, it was Moses, you know, striking the rock, even though God said, speak to the rock. And he, he took it into His own hands. Didn't think God's Word could be trusted, I guess. And so He took it into His own hands. It was, you know, worshiping the golden calf at the, mount, at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was a repeated examples of not trusting God. So how did they show they trusted God? Well, a trust is an individual thing. So, you know, you trust God by acting on what God says. You, you trust God, first of all, internally, you know, by expressing that faith and not having doubts. You know, faith and doubt are, are uh, intellectual things. But if we trust God, we'll obey Him. It goes back to that no trust obey model that I've taught many times, that you've got to know God to trust Him. The more you trust Him, you'll obey Him. It goes back to the great old hymn, trust and obey. So who you trust, you're going to obey. Uh, I, I don't want to say that you can always identify a person's personal trust in God by observing their behavior because people can perform morally who are far away from the Lord. In fact, don't even know the Lord. <laughs> Non-Christians non can do moral things. But the, the Israelites that were able to go into the promised land were ones who had exhibited a steadfast faith in the Lord regardless of their circumstances. And, you know, the, that whole episode is a real teachable moment. That's what the writer of Hebrews comes back to again and again because it, you know, how often do we see God provide for? Here God had brought them out of bondage <laughs> in a miraculous way, by the way. And it didn't take long at all for them to start grumbling and complaining. Now, what miracles has God done in your life that, you know, you've somehow put on the back burner and forgotten about, and the next time you, life throws you a curve, you start grumbling and complaining at God. Woe is me, you know. So it's a great reminder of, of the steadfastness of our faith. And the, the judgment seat of Christ is that moment when, as we looked at last time, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 
God will judge or evaluate. Judge is, we call it judge because it's a judgment seat of Christ, but it's only called the judgment seat of Christ because Paul was making an analogy with a first century cultural raised platform in the town square where a you know, Roman leader would sit up and, and decide cases that were brought before him. But it's really a time of evaluation. We're, we're, we sh- we, you know, there's no condemnation of those who are in Christ. Jesus said, if you trust in me, you shall never come into judgment in terms of eternal life. You've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. But it's a judgment of a different kind, an evaluation. And it's all going to be, according to 1 Corinthians 4, about the counsels of the heart. See, we tend to think that, you know, the people who outwardly seem to have it all together, you know, are the ones that are going to be rewarded the most. So, you know, the perfect family with perfect kids and perfect grandkids and a perfect yard and a perfect house and two cars that are always clean, that always go to church, they never say a cuss word, they're always just the perfect family. And we set them up to be the ideal. But the story of Scripture is a story of broken people, not perfect people. And it's a story of broken people who in their brokenness come to the Lord, humbly seeking His grace and mercy. They're saved by faith. And then they trust God in their brokenness. They trust God as they go through life and find one struggle after another. I mean, even the perfect family is, you know, is, is a... Uh, is a myth in a way. I mean, I always like to point out Jesus had a stepfather, right? So, you know, when families come from broken homes, that's probably more closely like what Jesus grew up in than what we do, you know? So, not to condone sin or the things in our, in the, the choices that we make that often bring brokenness, that's, we're not condoning that, but God uses that. And the goal is to trust Him in the midst of it. If you're walking in sin and it's causing hardship in your life, you should confess that, make it right with God, and move on. But you need to trust God in good times and bad. Uh, Mike, did you have a comment? I filibustered over you. Sorry. Good. I was hoping if I kept talking long enough, you'd forget what you were going to say. All right. It worked. It worked. Good. All right. So any comments or questions about, I, I just think that, you know, H that you see on the screen there is a good general you know, summary of the kinds of things that are, uh, you know, rewarded in terms of just general diligence. All right, let's see. Uh, good stewardship of the gifts Christ has given you. So Luke 19, that's a passage we've looked at a lot. It's the parable of the minas. And this is where Jesus, uh, the day before the triumphal entry, as they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and the disciples thought the kingdom was about to be ushered in right away, right then. And Jesus tells them, no, 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 it's not, not yet. You know, the cross has to come before the crown, right? So he, he's, he's told them that, but they didn't get it very, they didn't really understand it. And so he's letting them know, no, I'm going to go away for a while to receive the kingdom. Then I'll come back, and when I come back, I'm going to see what you did with this life of service that you've had while I'm gone. So that's what Luke 19 is all about is, what kind of a steward are you? To whom much is given, much is required. And the one who's faithful and, and turned his one mina into ten is going to be given a, a bigger uh, authority, a bigger responsibility in the kingdom. The one who only turned it into five, he'll get you know less responsibility, still be in the kingdom, still be enjoying 
the joys of eternity with God forever, but he's not going to be put in charge of as much. Um, and then what's really interesting is, and this is a key point that relates to the doctrine of eternal salvation, is in the parable of the minas there in Luke 19, the one steward who does nothing with the mina literally produces nothing of rewardable value. He still gets into the kingdom. In the parable, there is a group that do not get into the kingdom. Who are they? They are the citizens who did not want the king to reign over us. We're referring to the Jews. So in the story, you've got the Gentiles, the Jews, and the king. And Jesus, here in the waning days before he's crucified, as we see later on in the, in the coming days, you know, he, he goes into the temple and curses the fig tree and overturns the tables of the money changers, and he has some pretty scathing things to say about the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. So this is just sort of in keeping with that theme as he's leading up to that climactic moment and he's saying these uh, you know Jews haven't even believed in me they want nothing to do with me they're going to crucify me so they don't get into the kingdom because they never had belief but the servants represent ultimately the church who is here while he's going away to receive the kingdom and that one uh, servant gets in but he gets nothing and in the parable I'm paraphrasing now but Jesus anticipates the objection among his listeners which is the same objection we have 2,000 years later when we read it in the Bible. And that is, wait, that doesn't seem fair. You know, uh, why is it that this guy gets 10 cities, this guy gets 5, this guy gets nothing? You know, that's not fair. Well, again, you're not understanding, when, you, when we think like that, we're not understanding the concept of rewards. And we're thinking myopically about just everything comes down to heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. No, it's not about always about heaven, hell. It's, it's once you're in heaven, it's about what did you do with this life? And the illustration I've used many times is, you know, if, if uh, the football team is down by five points with one second on the clock and they're at the one-yard line, all they got to do is get a touchdown, they win the game. Uh, who's the coach going to hand the ball off to? He's got two running backs. One of them rushed for over 2,000 yards, carried the ball 30 times a game, averaged six or seven yards a carry, and fumbled twice the whole season and recovered both of his own fumbles. The other guy carried the ball 10 times all year for a net total of negative 30 yards, fumbled six of those 10 times, and lost the ball. Who are you going to give the ball to? What's the Broncos. But enough about the Broncos. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, you probably saw that coming a mile away. Uh, but anyway, uh, so who are you going to give the ball to? Of course. You're going to invest in the one who's proven themselves faithful. And that's all the doctrine of rewards is, is about. Um, so, and then you see some others there, enduring persecution. Oh, sorry, yes. I'm going to plagiarize a question that Mindy and I talked about. Okay. So her question was, if your personality in this world is to be a supporter and instead of a, an authoritative leader, and you are Oh, great question. So let me repeat the question. That's why I love Plum Creek Chapel, because you guys really think through stuff like this. Um, the question is, if in this life you're faithful, but your nature is to be more of a behind-the-scenes servant and supporter of those that are really leaders and leadership roles, 
does that mean that your reward at the Bema will be suddenly you're thrust into a position of leadership? And the answer is no, not at all. This parable of Minas is just sort of a metaphor for the general concept of if you're faithful in what we've entrusted to you, Amina, then you're going to be rewarded. Uh, there's all kinds of rewards, as we're about to look at, and God's not going to put you in a position that he hasn't equipped you to, to do. Now, I will say this. If he wants you to be in leadership, he'll give you the skills and talents to do that. But my sense is that you know, our human nature, though it's fallen and corrupt now because of sin, in the eternal state will be redeemed and glorified, but we're still you're still going to be Judy, I'm still going to be JB, we're still going to be who we are. We don't become totally different people, right? So I think you're going to he's going to find a place of service that is uh, consistent with your own passions and natural abilities. So, yeah. So the the person that ends up with no reward. Yeah. What it, the question is, what is the person who ends up with no rewards going to be doing? Why are you considering that avenue? <laughs> Paul, Paul said, well, I'll let you know, yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean, it's going, we're all going to be doing the things that all the world is going to be doing. We're going to be worshiping the Lord. We're going to be coming up to Jerusalem annually. We're going to be um, you know, singing praises to Him. We're going to be living life without the constraint of sin and injustice and all the problems of this world. We'll be doing the things that Adam and Eve did in the garden, walking and talking with animals, most animals. I didn't say anything, Suzanne. I just said most animals. Uh, yeah, there was. You could see it, huh? A little bubble above my head. Um, so, no, I mean, I think it, we're going to be just enjoying the presence of the Lord, you know. Uh, there are a lot of passages that talk about, you know, the glories of heaven. We looked at some of them when we started out our discussion of the eternal state. Um, you know, it says, uh, for example, in Revelation 21, um, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's a universal promise for the whole world. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. So it's, it's going to be a glorious place. And unlike anything we've seen, you know, Paul said, I have not seen nor uh, ear not heard or I have not seen what things God has in store for us. I'm butchering that passage. But we were talking about memorizing scripture. This is one of those examples, you know. But yeah. Yeah, at, at the moment of reward, at the Bema judgment, and again, and we're going to get into this at the end of this study, but we don't know, you know the very details of how this happens. All we can say is for sure it happens after the rapture and before the second coming. Whether it lasts the whole seven years while all hell is breaking loose on earth with the Antichrist and we're up there, whether it happens in a moment, after all, eternity is timeless, we don't know those kind of details, but what, whatever form it takes on, there's no doubt there will be that moment of remorse for those who haven't lived a faithful life. I mean, that, 1 John 2.28 says, Little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, you will be confident and not ashamed. So there is that moment, but it's going to be fleeting, and then for the rest of eternity, 
in eternity upon eternity, we're going to be enjoying the presence of the Lord in, in perfect peace. Hold that thought, and Nate, Nat. Well, I was reminding me of a, of a passage, I believe it's Paul, and I don't remember where, what church he's talking to, but writing to, but it's a similar concept, and he says, he uses the analogy of the, of the sea, when it's, well, excuse me, something else I was thinking of, that it becomes something that's not, but also he says when I was a child I thought of it oh yeah First Corinthians 13 yeah so uh, yeah I mean now I take that passage a little different I think that's talking about the completion of God's self-revelation to mankind but um, so when we have the complete revelation we now have you know we're now mature we have what, what we need but yeah I, I just think it's, it's going to be unlike anything we can imagine scripture says that again and again you know we're going to be a child of God enjoying the Lord's presence for all of eternity. But it's not going to be this, again, this nebulous just floating around that we're going to be doing things. And that involves different rewards. And they're not just positions of authority. We're, we're fixating on that at the moment. You're going to see there's a lot of other rewards too. Uh, Paul. So this idea of rewards in the Israelites and uh, uh, on earth and, and while they were wandering... Yeah. Moses sent out the spies to spy out the land, and only Joshua and Caleb came back with a, a good report. And, and God says, none of you will enter the right. promised land. Uh, and he sent them away to wander again. Yeah, I think that was the, he said, he's talking about when the spies were sent out, uh, and only Joshua and Caleb came back and said, we can do this. The rest of them were a bunch of wimpy scared cowards and uh and so that that's that to me that was the climactic moment when their lack of faith was sort of reached the tipping point and reached the point of no return but they had exhibited a lack of faith time and time again throughout the, the story throughout the history if you read the story so um but that's a that's interesting that you brought that up um because i think we're headed into a global territory if the lord tarries is coming where we're going to be dealing with giants again, you know, uh, perhaps literally Nephilim. You know, it seems pretty clear to me from Genesis six that they're still around. So I think if the Lord doesn't come back soon, we may be facing some uh, things we haven't faced before. And are we going to be a Joshua or Caleb, or are we going to cower? And, and so I've just been in a, in a season here as I finished up the book and been doing these interviews and stuff where I've, I've just felt like, you know, I don't want to provoke Satan, but I just want to remind him we're not afraid of you. You know, we, we know who greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We know who wins in the end. We want to remind you who wins in the end. And, you know, give it your best shot. But we're, we're victorious. Uh, and that's the kind of faith that I think I hope, hope I can hold on to come what may, and I think we all need to be reminded, and we need each other for that, to bolster our faith. You know, I wonder if Joshua would have had the same faith if he was alone. You know how much easier it is to have faith when you've got someone there with you, you know? And the minute you stand alone, you start looking around and thinking, ah, you know, self-doubt, and I mean, I, as I've said, I think the definition of leadership is the willingness to stand alone. Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of servant leadership was abandoned by everyone, including his family. And he's the greatest leader that ever lived. So leadership is not defined by having followers. Leadership is defined by being willing to stand alone. Uh, yeah, Sally. Um, 
Yes, so the question is about martyrdom. There is a martyr's reward. Um, I can't remember where it is on my list. Let's see. Uh, but de definitely martyrdom receives a reward for sure. Is it right there? Yeah, during persecution. So certainly, and, and martyrdom is the extremist form of persecution. Uh, yeah, absolutely you receive a special rewards. Um, for example, in 2 Timothy 2, we've come up against this passage several times, but let's look at it again because it's often misunderstood. Notice he, he says in verse 11, This is a faithful saying, If we died with him, we shall also live with him. It's a reference to your salvation. Uh, notice, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. So this is clearly what bucket is this in? Right, because there's no, it's got to be eternal rewards because there's no if-then when it comes to salvation. The only if-then with salvation is if you believe, you have eternal life. Not if you persevere, you'll get in, and then you've got to wait till you die to see if you did enough. No, no. If you endure, you shall reign with him. Same sentence or same uh, verse in, in the English Bibles. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, people rip that out of context and say, see there, if you deny the Lord, you're going to hell. No, no, what's the context? He's giving polar opposites. Enduring brings one result. Denying brings another. If you endure persecution, you're going to get to reign with him. If you don't endure and instead deny him, he will deny you the right to reign with him. That's the context, not heaven or hell. But he goes on to say, even if we are faithless, meaning we have no faith at all, God remains faithful because he cannot deny one of his own. He can't deny himself. We're a child of God. Yeah. So the question is about the mark of the beast. Revelation makes it abundantly clear that anyone who takes the mark of the beast goes to hell. The Bible also makes it abundantly clear that anyone who believes the gospel goes to heaven no matter what. So what does that tell you? How do you reconcile those two? Believers will not take the mark of the beast. That's the only way to interpret that. Yeah. For sure, if the Lord carries his coming, we're going to be more persecuted than ever. Yeah. You know, especially in this country, we have no idea. Right? So are we just supposed to, like, endure that? Are we supposed to push back? Are we supposed to... What are we Great supposed question. To, what are we supposed to do? Great question, and we'll close with this because of time. Uh, but uh, I don't want to make one quick announcement at the end, but let me answer this first. So... I have a whole chapter in the new book. By the way, I'm not making shameless plugs on the book. We're giving it away. But the information there is so vital for such a time as this. As I've said, the last two books are the most important books I've ever written. I don't know if I'll get to write another one because who knows when the Lord's going to come back. But uh, you, you, you have a whole, I have a whole chapter in there on the rise of Christian persecution. And I address it from all different angles. And uh, I believe the Bible teaches we are to push back in the sense of we should never just move to a mountaintop, sell all our belongings, live in a cave, and wait for Jesus to come back. We have a job to do. We are here. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us, right? Well, that's a defensive posture. It means we're supposed to be on the offensive. We're supposed to be sharing the gospel, proclaiming the truth in a world that is not proclaiming the truth and is obliterating the truth. 
we're supposed to be pushing back. Now, you know, you have to be wise and, and uh, you know, intentional and choose your battles. There's a time to fight and there's not a time to fight. You know, you think back to the, all of the lies and misinformation of the pandemic, you know. Uh, there's no question scientifically, medically, and otherwise that masks do absolutely nothing against a SARS virus. It was a complete psyop. We know this on record. But there were times when I put a mask on because I, it was easier than making a stink. You know, when, when, when our granddaughter had surgery, you know, we wanted to be able to sit there, so we wore a mask, you know. We, we, didn't, we didn't go to jail over that. There are things I will go to jail over, but that's not one of them. So I think each person has to evaluate the circumstance, the situation, and decide what hill are you going to die on. Um, and the Bible gives us a lot of truth about that and, and, a, and, a, and a grid to make those decisions. So, uh, so I think the answer to your question is both. Do we sit back and endure or do we push back? So I would say, for example, um, there were believers that were arrested for singing praises to God out in the open air in their parking lot because they were standing too close to somebody else. They literally went to jail. So that's when the endurance kicks in. Now you're in jail, and like the Apostle Paul and Silas or Peter and John in our survey through Acts, that's when you just endure. You, 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 know, you pray for those who persecute you, and you just endure it. Um, they could have not sung praises to God, which I think would have been wrong. I think they needed to push back in that instance, just like we continue to have church, even though the Colorado government told us that only certain people could come. You had to sit in a certain place. You had to wear certain things. You couldn't sing certain things. We said, sorry, we obey God, not man. And had God in his sovereignty chosen for our uh, leaders of Plum Creek Chapel to be arrested, you know, I would have given him Gary's cell phone number and said he's the one that was in charge, you know. And, uh, and I'm sure Gary would have endured. Yes. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> because I don't want to be in jail. Um, so anyway, I hope that, that helps. We can talk more about this next time. So speaking of next time, uh, it's been a while since we've had a Q&A. So next Sunday, bring your questions on any topic. Obviously, we're focused on the end times right now, but it can be on anything. And we'll dedicate the entire hour to a Q&A next week. And then we'll come back and continue talking about rewards. We're on no timetable or agenda here. Uh, be pretty cool if the rapture happened right when we were talking about rewards. You know, we'd be ready for it, right? So anyway, Q and A next uh, time. Let's uh, take a break. We'll come back together for worship at 10 o'clock. And for those of you live streaming, we will begin the live stream at roughly 10:25 to 10:35 Mountain Time when we come back at that portion of the service. <laughs>